Hello, Aframada readers. My name is Ratnaguna, and I have the great pleasure of having Tom Hammonshaw Shaw with me here. Hi, Tom. Hi, Ratnaguna. How are you today? I'm really well, actually. Yeah. Good. Uh, you're down in Devon, aren't you? Oh, close. Uh, North Dorset. I live about uh, sort of 30 minutes away from Glastonbury. Ah, okay. And you're a Glastonbury lover, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, uh, Tom's here with me to tell me about a book that he thinks is worth reading. This is the, I think, the third uh, in our series called Books Worth Reading. Uh, there's a slight difference here with Tom because he's got two books by the same author that he thinks is worth reading. So who is the author and what are the books, Tom? Yes, yeah, so uh, the author is David Goodhart. And the two books I've got to recommend are The Road to Somewhere and Head, Hand and Heart. Ah, OK. I haven't read either of those books, so this is going to be very uh, informative and educational for me. I've heard of David Hart and I've heard of those books. They come highly recommended by some of my friends. So I'm really looking forward to hearing you on this. Um, and why have you chosen these books, Tom? So I have a strong link with uh, the author. I was uh, the author's researcher on Head, Hand and Heart. So a fairly intimate connection with that book, um, perhaps more so than just going into Waterstones and picking it up off the shelf. I spent, you know, 18 months of my life focused on it, uh, researching it and uh, hopefully helping uh, David produce what I think is a, is a really good book, actually. And um, and the the previous book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, uh, was the book that inspired me to get in touch with David, um, which was a really uh, good decision in the end. Um, but I mainly did that initially because I was such a fan of the book. I thought it really um, nailed a very important political uh, moment, which was essentially the the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. Um, and I thought it was the, the most penetrating book that I'd read on that uh, topic um, after having worked in politics for most of the last uh, 15 years. Yeah. Gosh. So uh, you were so impressed by that book that you wrote to him and he responded, obviously. Yes. Well, I was working at the Office for National Statistics at the time, which is in Newport in South Wales. And I wrote to David, uh, essentially uh, slightly being uh, a bit credentialist, and, uh, you know, said I was working there and, uh, you know, if he ever wanted to get in touch, if I could, you know, help him uh, research anything, then he was to do so. And, and it happened that he was in Bristol, which is only about an hour's drive away uh, the week after, I think. So got me a free ticket to his event and we met. Uh, we met at the event and hit it off. And uh, yeah, and that was that was the start, really. We, we took it from there. Um, uh, ironically, there was a bit of uh, genuine uh, business, as it were, uh, to, to, to help with uh, on the Office of Financial Statistics side of things. Uh, and what, once that was out of the way, we, we managed to, to start a professional relationship that was yeah, very successful with all its twists and turns. But um, I still count him as a friend today. So I'm very lucky in that respect. Wow. And uh, I think you told me a little while ago that you become friends as a result of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a very intense process, obviously, writing with someone, um, as anyone who's done so probably knows. Um, I mean, David is a very 
shining intellect you know he's got incredibly penetrating insights um very uh unusual heterodox iconoclastic um views of uh, the uk political scene and indeed you know, the wider context of uh, western liberal democracies uh, so it was a it was a great honor we both share a passion for big ideas so that was what brought us together but like anyone knows you know these these processes they have their twists and their turns and uh, that was certainly the case, but we we managed to uh, shoot the rapids, as it were. And I, I really would say that the thing that I relied on at certain points was my Dharma practice, actually. Um, when when things were a bit rocky, um, it was coming back to, uh, yeah, a lot of the things that I've learned within uh, my Buddhist practice, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to say that we're still we're still in good good communication, and uh, I'm actually seeing him next week. Uh, the first time since the pandemic so really looking forward to that wow and uh you just went a little bit quiet there dave uh sorry, calling you david now <laughs> tom uh, so just uh try and uh keep close to your microphone um sure so what what is david apart from being a writer how come he came to be writing these books yeah so he's had an interesting journey um essentially uh, David's probably best known for being the founding editor of a contemporary uh, politics magazine called Prospect, um, which was founded in the mid-90s. David was a journalist at the FT for many years, working on the employment desk uh, when, um, you know, the, uh, well, the, 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 the eastern states of the European Union now uh, came out of, uh, you know, communist rule. Um, and he was based in Germany at that time, covering a lot of the, the transition as well. So he had he had an interesting background, founded Prospect in the mid 90s. And that became a kind of galvanizing publication for the, the emergent modern new center left. Yeah. So it was very, very much associated with the rise of new labor. And uh, David has been a Labour Party member most of his life. So he was very much in the tribe, you know, at that time. Mm. What, what, what interests me about his journey is that he, partly through um, his, um, his essays uh, on immigration, um, became uh, a kind of apostate, really. Um, he, he was a lone voice uh, being skeptical of mass immigration in the early 2000s on the left um, and wrote quite, a, I think he would say, a speculative essay about that topic, um, which caused a furore, really. And um, as a part of that, rather than fold and uh, kind of uh, eat humble pie, he actually doubled down on his skepticism. Uh -huh. um, and wrote uh, a more detailed treatment of that, which eventually became a fantastic book called The British Dream, um, which was his first major breakthrough book. Mm. But partly because of that journey, he's he's um, you know he's been quite an inspiration to me. Um, having worked in politics, um, it's the tribalism and the groupthink and the hierarchy that really means. Uh, I don't. I personally believe that that's what. That's what stultifies our political system. There's not enough independent thinking going on. That's um, right. And for, yeah, and for me, that's that's partly what inspired me to, to work with David. Uh, um, but just to answer your question very briefly, he, he heads up a, um, a think tank uh, program and he also is now a commissioner on the Equality and Human Rights Commission. 
Mm, okay, that's good. Uh, it's lovely to hear you talk about uh, David and his um, anti-tribalist mindset because uh, that's one of the things that Aframada is trying to do. Uh, quite a few of my articles in Aframada are to do with tribalism and uh, trying to get out of that, you know, release yourself from the tribalist mindset, which is quite a hard thing to do. But we should move on to the book, shouldn't we? Um, <laughs> let's begin with uh, the first one of the two. Uh, I think you called it, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember what you called it. That's okay. So it's, it's. I would say uh, we'll take them in chronological order. So the first book was The Road to Somewhere. Yes, that's it. That's it. So what is that? What is the somewhere? Yeah, that's a, a good place to start. Um, so some people may have heard of the uh, distinction between anywheres and somewheres or anywhere people and somewhere people, uh, which, um, you know, literally was a, a, a neologism, a new concept from this book that David wrote. Um, so essentially, uh, the the main focus was about how to explain Brexit. And everyone was coming up with theories after the, uh, the referendum about what had gone uh, in some cases, people were thinking, what's gone wrong? Yes, I remember. Um, <laughs> but um, he had what I think is probably the most um, penetrating analysis uh, that I'd read to that point, which was this distinction between anywheres and somewheres. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'll just you know briefly describe those two. Um, yes. Essentially, he, he used a lot of um, public polling data to describe these values clusters, which I think was also actually quite a stroke of genius to base it so much on survey evidence, because what you often get is very uh, high falutin ideas that don't really match where people are. The, the one thing about polling data is that you can't deny it, you know, in a sense, although mm. there are big problems with polls. Um, what you have is people expressing their opinion. So it's, it's actually meeting people where they are. Mm. And he took this data and he basically sifted it for what he would describe as um, loose, very loose affiliations um, across somewhere and anywhere lines. Yeah. But anywhere people are essentially said to make up about 25% of the population. Um, they are pro-change generally. Uh, they're the, 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 the egalitarian and meritocratic people on, on race and sex and gender some of them might want to push further on those big cultural issues. They're generally individualists. Um, they're much less attached to larger group identities, including things like national identity or regional identity. Their value system heavily skews towards autonomy and self-realization. Generally, they are in the top quartile of income and class. So they're, they're people at the top of society. Um, and almost all of them will be graduates. Um, they will have gone away to university and never come back to their hometown. Yeah? Mm. Um, and and they're what might be called the mobile minority. They're associated, associated excuse me, associated the mobile with, minority. Uh, Interesting yeah, mobile, phrase. Mobility. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yes. Uh, so okay. That, that paints a skip that picture of the the anywhere's. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And they're about twenty five percent of the population of of this population of the UK. Is that? Yeah, that's UK. That's UK. But he would say that that's pretty well reflected in most developed democracies. Okay. So the other 75% are the somewheres? Uh, 
Uh, well, actually, there's a there's a group called the Inbetweeners who uh-huh. make up about twenty five percent. Oh, okay, so fifty percent of them are somewheres. Yeah, so the Inbetweeners that's that's pretty much uh, self explanatory. Mm. Um, but the somewheres are um, yeah, they're they're what um, often have uh, they're people who have um, ascribed identities as opposed to achieved identities, which is um, a distinction that the sociologist Talcott Parsons, uh, who's a great sociologist, um, came up with. But that's things like Cornish housewife or um, or hull fisherman, yeah? Yes. So those, those are kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're often ascribed to people uh, rather than um, senior manager or uh, so on, which are mm. achieved identities. These people generally have ascribed identities, yeah? Um, broadly, they don't welcome change, um, which doesn't mean to say that they're particularly reactionary or even regressive. It's just that they um, have uh, values that um, focus on security and familiarity. Um, they're generally okay with the equality revolution of uh, culture, which has happened since the 60s, but they still value traditional family forms. Only a very small subset of them w- w- would be what you call hard authoritarians and bigots, yeah? Mm. Um, mm. So that's about 5 or 7% of those guys. So it's, um, begin- it's beginning yeah. to sound like the somewheres, apart from the, the hardliners that you mentioned at the end there, are more or less conservatives? Well, it's interesting. So the the political divide is not necessarily easily to map onto these two categories. So... Mm. What you have is, um, yes, anywhere generally vote Labour and Lib Dem and Greens, the so-called progressive parties. Mm. But also in the anywheres, you have people who are very, um, actually very much represented in things like finance or the professions or um, upwardly mobile. So they also have uh, some core of them their political identity wrapped up with what are traditionally thought of as being, you know, quite, quite modern right wing ideas. So they're often people who are described as um, benefiting from the so-called double liberalism, which is sort of being on the so-called left on cultural issues and being on the so-called right on economic issues. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's the double liberalism. And the somewhere people, they are, in a sense, not benefiting from that double liberalism. They are, um, you know, they may well be traditional Labour voters, of course. And this is where it gets really interesting because mm. we're, we're through the looking glass when it comes to um, particularly class and voting intention. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's, we're in a whole new phase of things basically best captured by the the red wall victory, yes. so-called. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, if you really dig down into those debates, like a lot of very good uh, political scientists and political thinkers have done, I mean, it gets really complicated. And I think it's really worth unpacking, but we don't have time for that today, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, would you say that the, the somewheres are mainly working class? Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's one thing that you could you could say quite easily there's there's interesting things that happen when it comes to uh comes to class and income so it although the two sound the same they're actually not and i Mm. think um there's a really interesting uh dimension to this debate to look at those two and where they diverge but with the somewhere tribe 
Um, yes, I think you can definitely say they'll be uh, probably in the bottom uh, uh, 50% of um, of the income spectrum. Yeah, mm. so they'll be on middling or less than middling uh, income uh, brackets. Um, and although, again, it's not, it's more patchy when it comes to class. Uh, the somewheres are a bit more diverse when it comes to class. Mm-hmm. But um, broadly speaking, um, there's there's a large section of them that are from more traditional working class communities. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So the obvious question is, why does David call them somewheres? Sure. Well, there's a great um, great deal of time devoted this to this in the book, um, but. I would say uh, one. I mean, one particular fact that I really, uh, I really enjoy is um, that I think it's something like uh, twenty, um, sorry, eighty percent of people uh, live within a twenty-mile range of the house that they lived in when they were fourteen years old. How many? Yeah. How many people? Eighty percent. Eighty percent of people. Yeah, Gosh, that really surprises me. Sure. And I think that's a 2015 fact, but wow. it's broadly true. And I think it reveals something that often, um, maybe, dare I say it, uh, I'm not going to classify which tribe you belong to, Ranaguna, but I think I'm in the in-betweener camp, to be honest. Ah, uh-huh. But I think anywhere people often completely overlook that really core fact about most of their fellow citizens people aren't as mobile as they assume. They're not as mobile as they are. Absolutely not. You know, they're much more attached to their neighborhood. They're much more attached to the familiarity that that brings. They have social ties that are based there. Um, and they don't They don't want that upset. You know, they don't want those uh, bonds and those traditional uh, recognized uh, cultures disturbed. Yeah. So that's the somewhere aspect of that. Okay, so... Uh... And so you, you began by talking about Brexit. And I suppose I'm guessing that the somewheres are the main people who voted to, to leave the European Union. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. This is actually, I think this is quite important for our Buddhist movement, Tri Ratna, because in the West anyway, well, people in Britain, <laughs> order members I know in Britain, uh, were very much against Brexit. The vast majority of them very much against Brexit. And anybody who did vote for Brexit had a pretty hard time of it, I think. Um, They would, well, we won't go into what kind of hard time they had, but uh, um, Subhamati mentioned that in the first article of Aframada on Brexit. He tells, you know, that he had a bit of a hard time with his friends because he voted for Brexit. So I think it's important, actually, that uh, we really listen to the somewheres, because there's a tendency to look at those who voted Brexit as being jingoistic, uh, dogmatic, uh, against immigration, racist, and so on. And um, I think, actually, we need to really listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the big argument in the first book in, in The Road to Somewhere is that these people are what David describes as decent populists. Mm. Um they are not uh, racist or particularly, um, uh, you know, to the to the hard right on cultural issues. They're increasingly comfortable with, with you know, 
the homosexual revolution and rights and in prominence and um you know they they are not uh they're not jingoistic like uh, perhaps people were back in the 50s mm. um but they don't benefit from globalization in the way that the anywheres do mm -hmm. um you know there are real material differences that happen in their lives when um the culture becomes more and more uh, globalized and uh, and that's that's just a one aspect of things the globalization movement but um it's not like they're making this stuff up you know mm. um there's a real sense also that um i think when we we look at uh, the anywheres um because they uh, they find um change much more comfortable they can adapt to it much more easily mm. um but it's not it's not that the somewheres aren't uh, able to accept change it's just that their values are different and they're not necessarily um somehow wrong to hold those values mm. um i mean this is where the work of jonathan Haidt, a great social psychologist has got a lot to teach us i think about the difference between the right and the left in terms of values mm. um there's there's this assumption that uh, maybe anywheres have that as long as uh, you're in the egalitarian goodies camp, um, then you're on the right side of history. Mm. And actually, you know, somewheres just hold different values. They have equally important uh, different values. And this is where Haidt, as a self-professed liberal left guy, um, said that he, he had woken up to a whole new way of looking at the world. Um, you know, these people have values, values that are reasonable, um, but they are not the same as the anywhere mobile minority. And, and David's first book, The Road to Somewhere, classifies the, the difference between those two. But he also captures the idea of anywhere overreach. That, that for 30 years, we've had a system at the elite level that is run on anywhere software. And increasingly, it's a kind of a hyped up version of that. So as time has gone on, the balance between the anywhere minority and the somewhere majority-ish um, has become way out of kilter with the anywheres dominating at the top levels of society uh, and their values being imposed on the rest of the culture. Um, and it's, it's both sides have decent arguments for their values it's not that uh, anywheres are wrong either but it's just that the balance between those two sets of values has become way out of kilter um, and interestingly in the second book that's what he's trying to explain at a slightly deeper level how did this 30-year anywhere dominated society get made um, and that's kind of the the extension of the argument in the second book head hand and heart oh okay well that's a good uh, place to move on to the second book but just before we do so as you're talking it's having quite an effect on me i must say um because this isn't just theory is it this is real life and uh i'm a person and so where am i i'm i'm probably like you an in-betweener but i wish i were a somewhere uh it's interesting uh you probably heard about the book the master and his emissary by ian gilchrist sure yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I, I found very interesting there was his uh, there's a whole uh, section on the importance of place, uh, where you come from, where you live and so on. That's really important. Um, 
And I, I really resonated with that. And uh, I still have a very strong feeling for my hometown. And for the past few years, uh, I've been taking my mother back. She, she wants to go back there, but it's impossible now. It's far too expensive to live there, Marlow in Buckinghamshire. And uh, we go back there a couple of times a year for a few days. Well, until the, the pandemic, anyway, we were doing that. And we both love being there. And for me, there's this very strong sense of coming home when I go back to Marlow in Buckinghamshire, a very strong, almost mythical archetypal sense. It's a very strong feeling. That's kind of ironic that Stanley Spencer's from those, those parts, yes. isn't he? Yes. And there's someone who literally explored the archetypal realm of home. You know, uh, his paintings are all about that, that strong yes, archetypal yes. element to yes. place, which we all need to cultivate. I absolutely agree. And I, I, I haven't, haven't, barely started Ian's book but I I absolutely understand the central point that he's making there which is that we need to be embodied in a time and a place uh, to bring together these two aspects of our being you know and, mm. and for me that's where the modern left really has lost its way because it can't reconcile that with this kind of atomistic uh, denuded sense of people which it has its reasons for. They're generally decent reasons because they believe in the equality and the dignity of people. So they have to be committed on some level to the fact that people are all the same. Um, and that's a, a, a valuable insight. But the problem is if you're, if you're coming from that place all the time, you completely uproot yourself. You know, the French have this phrase, déraciné, you're uprooted. Um, and you're literally living in a world that is... Uh, made poorer by this sense of being just not connected to place and people. Um, and I think it's a real problem. I think it's a real problem in the culture that that's happened. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Well, I've never really thought about it before now, but uh, I, I, I kind of sense, I intuit that it's a real problem if you're not come somehow rooted to place and the, of course the people in that place as well but let's let's move on to the the second book of this um it's his third book i believe isn't it but the one after the road to somewhere is head hands and heart is it head hand and heart yeah that's yes. right so what's that how does he develop his ideas there yeah so uh that was the book that i had the great fortune to work on they work on with david and um, essentially, the, the argument there is around three categories of worker. So we're, we're now in the realm of uh, the economy, and we talk about head, hand and heart in the book. So head is, um, you know, cognitive jobs, cognitive uh, dependent jobs. So that will be quite often most office work for example yeah mm. there has to be some capacity for cognitive work mm. um loosely described yeah something to do with symbolic manipulation if you want to get a bit more technical yeah <laughs> yeah uh, um, also what what that means is working on the computer all the time i guess as well isn't it absolutely yeah sure yes. so that's a great that's a great motif you know people who work on computers for their mm. living yeah mm. um but but hand is people who are in the manual trades or indeed, um, you know, it might be on a production line in uh, various ways, or it might be they have a skilled manual trade, yeah? Mm. Um, but people who primarily make their money through the manipulation of real stuff, real matter, 
were through their hands. Yeah. Mm. And the final group is the heart group, who are what are traditionally in you know our modern political context called the caring professions. Mm. So people who may be working in a care home, maybe working in the NHS, and um, they are defined by some degree of emotional literacy in their work. You know, they're interacting with people. Mm. They need to be uh, drawing on those uh, skills and those uh, those values that they have. Yeah. So I guess empathy and compassion are big uh elements of that absolutely yeah absolutely um so that's the 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 heart group if you like Mm. now uh the argument the big argument that we make in the book is that essentially the head professions have completely dominated uh society in their own worldview and interests over the last 40 years Mm. and what's happened is because of the changes wrought to the economy by a number of different economic factors um the head group has come to see itself as the only real standard by which status should be measured yeah Mm. whereas um you know the hand group which used to be a much bigger group you know a huge amount of people used to have um, skilled manual jobs in this country is right up until the 70s. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, that has collapsed for very well-documented reasons. Um, but they've lost not only um, economic power, but cultural power as well. And the Heart Group, um, again, similarly, have become to be seen as a slightly less, um, accept- not acceptable so much, but um, because people love, you know, the fact that, People have good caring skills, um, but they're, they're, they're seen slightly as second rate, uh, you know, overall in the hierarchy of things. Mm. Um, and essentially, the, the, this imbalance towards head um, has led to a number of, you know, contemporary problems uh, across the, 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 the political piece, but also, you know, in, probably in terms of, you know, people's felt sense of themselves as well. Um, especially when it comes to status, which is um, somewhat explored in the in the book, but I think you know there's 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 hope that there'll be further research in that area. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's 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 not just that we have you know kind of uh, head dominating, but it's it's that people can only really aspire to headness, if you like. So it's 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 a, a curious kind of phenomenon where. You know, up until the 70s, something, uh, you know, something like, I think it was uh, something like 20% or or, uh, more, sorry, only 20% of people went on to university, uh, a tiny fraction. Mm. And uh, and that was across all uh, schools, including private schools and so forth. Um, And and something like 40% of sorry school leavers uh, left without taking any formal exams that was right up until the 70s Mm. and they still felt that they could have a successful life they still felt there were jobs or apprenticeships open to them um, which would accommodate the fact that they weren't particularly academically or cognitively gifted there was a much more equal uh, equal um, spread of esteem through the hierarchy of the jobs market Whereas what we have now is an expectation that 
at, at school, there'll be a sifting process whereby the cognitively able are picked out. They go to university and therefore are on the route to some kind of success. And the bottom 50% just don't have any kind of real prospects. I mean, things are slightly more nuanced than that, but that's the broad shape of the argument. That's really interesting. I don't know if you know the American philosopher. Now, I can't remember his name right now, but he's written a number of books, and one of them is called The Case for Working with Your Hands. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sure. Matt Crawford. Yeah, fantastic. So so Matt's quoted quite a bit in this book. He's, ah. he's, he's almost got a whole chapter built around some of his insights, if, I, if I'm not... Yes. Oh, that's really good to hear, because I'm yeah. so impressed by that book. Um mm. He, he, he's a philosopher. I just tell people uh, he's sure. a philosopher who, uh, after university, after I think he did a PhD. After that, he headed a think tank. He was in America heading a think tank. And after six months, he said it was so soul destroying. He just had to leave. And uh, he's always been a lover of um, motorbikes and motorcars. And uh, in his school holidays and so on, he used to work in um, bike shops, uh, uh, motorbike shops and so on. But he uh, he decided to leave the think tank and set up his own workshop. Uh, so he's a, a motorcycle mechanic now. And he's also a philosopher, which is in kind of, in, you'd never think to put those two things together before. Yeah, he's um, he's a unique character. And I think his, his insights into what the significance of handwork is mm, yes. are absolutely spot on. Yeah, so that's um, another book we can both recommend. Sure, the Case for definitely. Working with Your Hands by Matt Crawford. Wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry I've, I've uh, put you off in, in flow there. So where were we? So that's the head, hands and heart. And uh, the head people are, are kind of the elite, I suppose. They're the ones who are leading the way for us. Yeah, increasingly. I mean, one of the... One of the interesting uh, examples that uh, is given in the book is there used to be more routes to, um, well, to status, essentially, but also to to to, to a kind of uh, elite status. It's just that um, there were multiple kind of uh, pools of power in, in right up until the 60s. So the example given is um, the labor movement, for example. So. So, you know, in the labor movement, in the union movement, um, there would have been capable people, perhaps not cognitively uh, particularly distinguished, but they um, they were very good at working with their hands. They might be called what was a time served man, you know, someone working like my like my grandfather did on a lathe in a factory in mm. Manchester. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't particularly... Uh, Maybe he wasn't particularly uh, cognitively uh, gifted. Maybe he wouldn't have uh, seen himself as such, although he was a self-educated and, and very well-read man, actually, my grandfather. Mm. Um, but he, um, he was a time-served man. You know, he'd, he'd done 20 years on that lathe, and there was no way that someone with a PhD could have placed him. Yeah? And he was the shop steward. You know, he, he'd been uh, elevated above his peers, because, partly because of his skills, but also partly because of his leadership. And there was, a, you know, there was a whole distinct... Uh, you're d- you're just like fading that. away a bit there. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, that's better. Um, there was whole sort of groups of uh, potential for 
power you know different mm-hmm. kinds of power mm-hmm. um and all of these had uh, kind of ladders you know it, there were multiple pools of power whereas now what we have is just one elite rather than these multiple elites we have just this thought of one elite which is captured by the word london <laughs> uh, and you know the expectation is that if you're somebody you are trying to make it into this new new uh, mass elite so to speak and the only way you can really do that is through cognitive skills yeah mm. there's mm. very few pathways if you don't have those cognitive skills into this one monolithic elite and interestingly enough of course this is where the head hand heart divide kind of maps onto the somewheres and anywheres divide um the fact is that generally if you're cognitively gifted for a number of reasons you will probably be an anywhere person anyway yeah mm. and your experience because of the university system will certainly have been designed to expose you more to anywhere ideas yes. you will have gone away to a residential university where it will become a day facto expectation that you won't go back to your town mm. uh, afterwards and get a milk round job and you've started you've started that entry into the kind of brahmin class which will eventually go on to essentially rule the country um and you know you just have to look at facts like there's something like i think it's something like uh 93% of mp's have degrees and the same is true in the states and those numbers have been steadily increasing yeah over time mm. so you know back in the 60s you had literal miners sitting in the house of commons yeah um there's no way now that you would have those similar kind of dynamics in play um and the expectation is that the cognitive class who rulers essentially rule in their own interests and their own image um again neglecting this 50% of people who don't share some of their insights don't share some of their values and of course that class flatters themselves in the sense that they form their they say they form their opinions on evidence on rational uh, computation on reason because these are the things that generally cognitive people do but but those things have heavily biased uh, views baked into them yeah the mm. fact is that we're all biased yeah yes. including the cognitively gifted and hopefully yes. i'll be publishing an article on apromada about this topic very soon. yeah i was <laughs> just thinking about that as you were speaking i thought oh you say something about that in the article uh i think we should draw to a close fairly soon tom but uh so far, what you've done is you've you, David Goodhart has um, told us the problem. There's a problem here with the anywheres and somewheres and head, hands, heart. Uh, does he have a prescription? Does he have a way forward where we could make it better? Yeah, he definitely has some big thoughts about that in the final chapter. I mean, uh, sorry, the final chapter of head, hand, and heart. Um, they're very much uh, David's prescriptions, and they're fascinating. Um, I think he, like everyone, would admit freely that it's much easier to diagnose than to prescribe when it comes to political life. Um, yes. It's always more difficult to come up with the, the future-looking stuff. Um, but I'd recommend uh, people uh, to read that final chapter. Mm. I think from my own perspective, if I can talk from that for a second, um, one of the things that... Uh, this whole process has allowed me is a sort of increase in appreciation or we, we could just say compassion 
uh, for you know for somewhere people and an understanding that um, you know we're all going to be uh, in a different value set at some point. Um, it doesn't make the other guy's values wrong or misguided, and we have to kind of try and take that on. Uh, as a kind of practice in a way to appreciate that um you know there will be a values clash how we uh, negotiate around that in a modern liberal democracy should include both sides and i think the central point that david's made that attracted me in the first place was we've only been listening to one side of the values divide yeah we've mm-hmm. only really had 30 years of uh, anywhere kind of views as seen as the only decent uh, potential views and, and head views as well. And so, mm. we, yeah, well, we need would, to open up more. Yes, yeah, so that would make uh, the somewheres feel somewhat resentful, I would have thought, if that's all they hear on the news and so on. There's really good data on people's sense of alienation. You mm. know, it's not it's not like uh, these things haven't been documented. I mean, I think there's there's a kind of accurate but not very deep analysis that happened post-Brexit and certainly mm. post-Trump election um, that misses some of the deeper dynamics in play and also just doesn't get that these these are values that can be uh, reconciled with um, one's own values. And I think that's the that's the, the hope for democracy and deliberative democracy perhaps, which which is one potential future movement where we find a form of politics that really can dialogue across values divides. We find a form of holding debate or a discussion which allows this kind of synthesis. I think we're way off that at the moment, and we've certainly had 30 years of one side dominating the other. But there are potentials, you know, things like citizens' assemblies and so forth, which really allow, you know, people from very different value sets to come together and negotiate and, 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 and try and appreciate the other side. Um, you know, some people are doing work in the field of collective intelligence to describe this uh, this kind of phenomenon. You know, all those things I think should be on the table. Um, but the final thing I will say is the the other thing: if you're feeling like an anywhere person and you're listening to this, one one really useful part of my my education, and, and I think this is where a true uh, humanities education is really helpful, is that I did a course in philosophy when I was a philosophy student doing my BA. And based on this uh, divide between the communitarian and the individual uh, themes in political philosophy, yeah, and those those two are very ancient, and also they they come right up to us through through analytic philosophy from the last three hundred years, and I really opened up to the fact that communitarians um, can have, uh, to use a technical word can have really good arguments that, that counter our very strong tendency towards individualism. Mm. Um, you know, successful societies are built on bonds of language and history and trust and cooperation and sometimes familiarity. Um, and we have to take that into account in our worldview. And um, we're not atomized individuals. You know, we, we, really, we really do exist in society. And some of that means particularism which is a hard thing for liberals, especially, you know, very decent-minded liberals to uh, accept. But I I do think that's a feature of successful societies. And 
Sometimes that means national preferences. Sometimes that means, um, you know, honoring national social contracts. It doesn't mean being jingoistic, but it does mean recognizing that someone who is a citizen or indeed someone who is in your nation um, needs to have preferential treatment. And that's a very hard thing for liberals to swallow mm. um, for good reason. But I, I do think at the final analysis, we have to really take that into account of people's that people's people's nature is um geared towards that kind of socialization certainly a large percentage of the population are crying out for it actually and and we have to come together and try and figure out some of the difficult points that that raises mm. well uh you really have um inspired me to buy those books and read them uh they do sound like books well worth reading thank you so much tom you're very, very welcome, Alligan. It's great to be chatting with you. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so thank you. And um, uh, we'll end it there. Goodbye, Tom. Take care.